Welcome to RoyalOaks.com. I'm Royal Oaks. O.J. Simpson. If you're 60 and you just emerged from a 20-year coma, you hear O.J. Simpson and you say, Ah, the juice, football star, TV pitchman, announcer, not very good actor. If you're 40 years old and you're lucky enough not to have been in a coma, you say, O.J. Simpson, yeah, double murderer, unbelievable story that gripped the nation for years back in the 90s. If you're 20, you say, oh, yeah, I've heard all about that guy. Uh, My parents couldn't stop talking about him. I I guess he killed a couple of people. So everybody's got their take on what Simpson meant to America. But there's no doubt the O.J. Simpson murder trial was one of the biggest, longest-running news stories in our history. It became a national obsession. And because it's been about 20 years since he was found not guilty of murder, FX Network has come out with a 10-episode series movie starring John Travolta and Cuba Gooding Jr. Ten Tuesday nights, February through April. Sorry, no downloading and binge-watching opportunities. The FX folks want you to establish a viewing habit. So on the occasion of this anniversary in this miniseries, here's what I want to talk about. First, what was the story all about? O.J.'s career... The 1994 murders, his murder trial, the civil trial by the victim's families for wrongful death against Simpson, and his bizarre 2008 Las Vegas robbery conviction that landed him in prison after all. Second, what are the takeaways from the story? Did he really do it? If he did, what kind of a person takes his anger against an ex-wife and transforms it into a blood-drenched double-knife murder, knowing his two small children sleeping upstairs may well come down and discover the bodies after the killer runs away? What did the Simpson case do to the public's right to see the justice system through cameras in the courtroom? How did the O.J. drama impact our celebrity-obsessed culture? How did Simpson impact how people learn about our legal system? And finally, did the charge of police racism in the Simpson case lead to that issue resonating across America today? And the third thing I'd like to do is uh, take a look at the FX movie. How about that? Two thumbs up or not? Okay, let's go. What was the O.J. case all about? Well, O.J. was a star. Heisman Trophy winning running back for USC in the 60s pro football star for the Buffalo Bills and other teams in the 70s and 80s, pitch man for Hertz Rent-A-Car. He was running through airports, jumping over suitcases in the 80s in those commercials, and then movie actor in the 80s and 90s. Then the murders. He was married to a beautiful blonde white wife, Nicole. Troubled marriage, lots of 911 calls because of him beating her up. They divorced. One day in June 1994, their kids are at a recital, Both O.J. and Nicole attend. They've got a a fight going. And that evening, his wife goes to dinner with her family at an Italian restaurant near her home in Brentwood. O.J. is a few miles away in his enormous home. Nicole's mother forgets her glasses at the restaurant, so a waiter at the restaurant, Ron Goldman, who's a friend of Nicole's, takes the glasses to her home. That evening, O.J. Simpson is scheduled to fly to Chicago to attend a celebrity golf tournament. He's ordered a limo to take him to LAX. Limo driver shows up. He uh, rings the bell. No O.J. He waits a while. After 10 or 15 minutes, O.J. answers the door, apologizes, and off they go, and he makes his flight. Later that evening, a neighbor walking through Nicole's neighborhood sees her and Ron Goldman's bodies. They've been brutally murdered with a knife. 
The police contact O.J. They give him the bad news by phone. By this time, he's in Chicago. He claims that when he got the bad news, he was so distraught, he, he clumsily broke a hotel water glass, giving himself a bad cut. So he flies home, and when he lands, he's met by his friend, Bob Kardashian. Yes, Kardashian, father of the girls. According to news footage, it appears that a travel bag O.J. returned was taken away, probably by Robert Kardashian. Police later say it may have contained bloody clothes, maybe a a murder weapon. So the cops question O.J. He denies any knowledge of the murders, but as it turns out, the blood found at the murder scene matches his blood. He's arrested, and he assembles a dream team of high-priced lawyers. Bob Shapiro, played by John Travolta, starts out as the leader of the pack, but he's soon replaced by Johnny Cochran, a charismatic black former deputy district attorney who's been a successful criminal defense lawyer. Cochran engineers a defense based on the idea that the cops were racist. They hated O.J. Simpson because he's black, and so they framed him. They allegedly planted a bloody glove behind his house. They drove around with blood samples in the trunk of a hot car, degrading the samples, preventing the prosecution from having reliable blood evidence. Now, famed criminal defense attorney F. Lee Bailey joined the team, and his main job was to cross-examine Mark Furman, the cop who claimed he found a bloody glove around the scene behind O.J.'s house. Bailey asks Furman if he ever used the N-word, and Furman denies it. So if someone were to say to you that you use the N-word repeatedly in their presence, they'd be lying. Is that right, Officer Furman? Right. Well, Bailey then called to the stand a lady from North Carolina, a screenwriter who had tape recordings from several years back of interviews with Mark Furman. She was researching, writing some screenplay about the, the gritty world of police work and racial tensions. And in the course of the answers to questions to uh, Furman, he freely tossed around the N-word. The highest drama of the trial came when the prosecution made the mistake of asking O.J. Simpson to try on one of the bloody gloves that supposedly was used by the killer. O.J. stands inches from the jury box, wearing a latex glove to avoid tainting the evidence, and then on top of the latex glove, tries to put on the leather glove used by the killer. He puts on a performance that put to shame all of his work in the movies. He he appears to struggle in vain, trying to put on what appears to the jury to be a glove that's just too small to fit his enormous hand. Cynics will later say that he stiffly splayed his fingers apart, all the while grimacing in mock frustration. He just can't seem to get the glove on. Later in the trial, in the final argument, this brilliant and charismatic lawyer, Johnny Cochran, will coin a phrase that resonated with the jury and has echoed down through legal history. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. If the murder glove didn't fit O.J. Simpson's hand, the jury should find him not guilty. That was the pitch. And so Judgment Day rolls around, verdict day. About 100 million people are watching on live television because the judge permitted cameras in the courtroom. The jury hadn't had the case for long. Hour or two in the afternoon, then they come back the next day, another hour or two. The jury, consisting of nine African Americans, one Hispanic, and two white jurors, they'd been sequestered for months to avoid being tainted by the tsunami of publicity. They finally got to talk about the case, but they didn't take long to arrive at a unanimous verdict. 
And nobody, nobody was predicting a guilty verdict when the word came down that a lightning-fast decision had been made by the jury. The idea that they would have been able to unanimously conclude Simpson was guilty, thus condemning him to spend the rest of his life in prison, since the prosecution didn't ask for the death penalty, the idea they would do this after just a couple of hours of conversation seemed unbelievable. And it was unbelievable. The jury voted not guilty. The pictures of the reaction by Simpson and his team are worth 10,000 words. The photographs graced the covers of virtually every paper and magazine around the planet. And the pictures have been burned into the memories of virtually everybody who was an adult at the time. Simpson is wearing this broad smile that not unexpectedly conveys a vast sense of relief. Johnny Cochran is grabbing Simpson's massive shoulders, and he digs his head into O.J.'s left shoulder. This picture of celebratory affection. But one man's face is talked about more than anybody else's. Bob Kardashian. It's like the Mona Lisa smile. You can't quite figure it out. You can't quite describe it. It's a mixture. Well, Kardashian is perplexed, or maybe he's stunned. Is he kind of startled, disappointed? Here's O.J. Simpson's best friend, his close friend for many years. He's just heard amazing, fabulous, delirium-inducing news. But instead of a smile or a gasp of relief, the whole world is free to speculate that this is the reaction of a man who knows full well O.J. Simpson murdered two people and got away with it. That was October 3, 1995. But our legal system lets the family members of victims sue the alleged culprit for wrongful death, in spite of the fact that he beat the rap in the criminal trial. And so, on February 5, 1997, some 16 months after the verdict in the trial of the century, a Santa Monica jury voted unanimously that O.J. Simpson killed his wife and her friend Ron Goldman, and they ordered him to pay about $33 bucks, mostly punitive damages, and virtually none of it has ever been paid. The fact that the jury was based in Santa Monica in the civil case may have been the key to the outcome. The jury in the criminal case in 1995 did their job in downtown Los Angeles, and the story of how that venue was picked is a strange one. The district attorney in the mid-90s in Los Angeles was Gil Garcetti, father of the current mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. The DA reportedly was totally confident he could win the murder case against Simpson. Some of his staffers urged him to file charges in West Los Angeles at the Santa Monica Courthouse, which he had a right to do because the killings occurred in West L.A. But because downtown Los Angeles was the site of the headquarters of the county's legal system, that's where all the, the DA officers hung out, the DA had a right to decide to conduct the trial in downtown instead. And that's exactly what he did. Some say he did it because he didn't want his staff, who tried the case to have to drive out to Santa Monica every day for nearly a year from their base of operations. Some say the DA was so confident of a conviction that he didn't think the racial makeup of the jury mattered. Indeed, it was reported that the lead prosecutor, Marsha Clark, felt female black jurors would be automatic votes against O.J. Simpson because of his reputation as a wife abuser. So, O.J. Simpson has a big debt to pay, $33 million bucks, but he never pays it. He gets twenty-five grand a month as a result of his NFL pension. But federal law says it doesn't matter how many people you kill, according to a jury in a wrongful death case, the family members of the victims can't touch your pension. But O.J. did have some stuff, some memorabilia, some jerseys, footballs, and that led to his downfall. 
he really didn't like Fred Goldman, the other family members who uh, and the folks who went after him for uh, killing Ronald Goldman. O.J. really didn't like the idea that the family would be collecting on the $33 million judgment by seizing his stuff, the memorabilia, the footballs. So he arranged for a pal of his to hold on to the stuff, and so they couldn't grab it. But as the years went by, O.J. realized he'd kind of like to get his stuff back. So he puts out some feelers, and what do you know? He gets wind of the fact that a fellow who wound up with his stuff would be happy to sell it to the highest bidder. So a middleman, a guy who knows both the seller and O.J., helps O.J. set up an encounter at a hotel room at the Palace Station Hotel and Casino in Vegas. So, as dutifully recorded by the surveillance video in the casino, O.J. Simpson and several of his pals trudge through the hotel and head up to the room where the memorabilia is laid out on the bed, ready to be inspected by a wealthy buyer. A couple of O.J.'s friends are packing heat. The seller is, of course, surprised to see the juice, who proceeds, backed up by his friends, to persuade the seller to hand over the property. And nothing would have come of it even though the seller complained to the police, but for the fact that the intermediary had decided it would be a good idea to record the whole session with a little micro-cassette tape recorder in his pocket, you know, just to set the record straight. And the recording makes it very clear that guns were involved. It was essentially a hold-up. But for the recording, O.J. and his friends would have told prosecutors, guys, the seller, he got it all wrong. We urged him to do the right thing. He did it. It is, after all, my stuff. Nobody disputes that. But the fact there was evidence on tape of the use of a gun gave the Nevada court system the chance for a do-over. Instead of a slap on the wrist or probation, given all the circumstances, the jury doesn't hesitate to convict Simpson of armed robbery, and the judge gives him 33 years in prison, with eligibility for parole in nine years, which now translates to October 2017. So, he currently resides not in a mansion in Brentwood, California, but in the Lovelock Correctional Center in Lovelock, Nevada. They say justice delayed is justice denied, but in the view of most folks, according to a Gallup poll, 78% of Americans think he did it, 16% have their doubts, and rather unbelievably, 6% have no opinion. Anyway, most people think justice delayed is better than no justice at all. So that's the story. And if you watch the FX movie, you'll see it played out courtesy of a gaggle of talented movie stars. When people talk about the O.J. Simpson murder case, they always mention the fact it became such an obsession because it pushed so many buttons. Sex and violence, celebrity and sports, drugs. There was speculation over the years about uh, how O.J. Simpson was flying high on methamphetamines when he chopped up his wife and her friend. The court system, the cameras in the courtroom issue, and always race, racist cops, O.J.'s race, his white wife, his criticism by the black community for not lifting a finger for the cause of civil rights. So, yeah, lots of buttons got pushed. But a bullet point list of hot buttons doesn't really help us learn any lessons from the tragic mess. So here's uh, my second goal today, to take a stab at some of those lessons. Lesson number one, he did it. At long last, let's put to rest whether he did it. He murdered two people. Here's how we know that. First of all, physical evidence, blood. DNA tests proved that at the Bundy house, Simpson's blood was found at the exact spot where the murders were committed. 
It proved that there were five blood drops near the killer's footprint uh, at the Bundy murder scene. The blood belonged to Simpson. DNA tests proved the chance of the blood belonging to anyone but O.J. were up 170 million to one. DNA proved that there were three blood stains on the rear gate of Nicole's home belonging to O.J. DNA proved that spots of blood on the driver's floor of the Bronco belonged to O.J. They proved there were three blood stains on the console inside the Bronco. It was a mixture of O.J.'s blood and the blood of both Ronald Goldman and Nicole. There was another console stain. Uh, uh, it was a mixture of O.J.'s and Ronald Goldman's blood uh, in the car. Uh, Nicole's blood was found in the driver's seat, seat carpet. Uh, O.J.'s blood trail from the Bronco to his estate once he got back home, included one blood drop behind the Bronco on the street, one on the driveway just inside the gate, three more on the driveway leading to the front door of the home, five on the floor of the foyer, and one in the bathroom. DNA evidence showed that O.J.'s blood was in the shower and the sink of the bathroom as well. Nicole's DNA and blood was found on O.J.'s socks in his bedroom. Ronald Goldman's blood was found on the glove found at the Rockingham house. The estimate was there was a 1 in 41 billion chance that it belonged to anybody else. Second, there was physical evidence, hair, fibers, and shoe prints. Hair was found in the knit cap at the murder scene matching O.J.'s hair, and hair matching O.J. was found on Ronald Goldman's shirt. What about fibers? Well, dark blue cotton sweatsuit fibers were found on Ron Goldman's shirt, and according to Cato Kalin, the house guest who lived at Simpson's house, that night Simpson was wearing, yes, a dark blue cotton sweatsuit. Shoe prints? Well, the killer's bloody shoe print was a size 12 Bruno Molly shoe. That's O.J.'s size. He denied wearing those shoes. He famously called them ugly-ass shoes. But what do you know? A 1993 photo of him at a football game showing shows him wearing those shoes that matched the prints at the murder scene. Unfortunately for the prosecution at the murder trial, they didn't have that photograph. It surfaced between the criminal and civil trials. Third, what about O.J.'s injuries? Well, on the night of the murders, he cut the knuckle of his left middle finger. Now that's the same side as the blood drops found immediately to the left of the killer's shoe print. Asked by police how he cut his finger, O.J. said, I don't know. Then he said, oh, I cut it in Chicago. Then he said, no, no, I cut it in Los Angeles and reopened the cut in Chicago. There was a broken glass in the hotel room in Chicago, but it had no blood on it. Simpson had three other cuts apart from the cut on his finger and seven abrasions on his body. Gee, it's almost like he was in a fight for his life and for the lives of two other people. You don't usually wind up with injuries like that when you're chipping golf balls in your yard before a red-eye flight to Chicago. But that's what Johnny Cochran told the jury that O.J. Simpson was doing that evening. Fourth, phone records. His Bronco cell records put O.J. in the Bronco at 10.03 p.m., minutes before the murders. Fifth, guilty behavior by O.J. When he was told by the cops about his ex-wife being dead, he didn't ask how it happened. When he was told by the cops that his ex-wife had been murdered, he didn't ask about the safety of his two youngest kids who he knew were sleeping upstairs. He held a gun to his head during the low-speed chase. He wrote a suicide note that reeks of guilt. During the chase, he had a passport and a gun, a fake mustache and a beard, a change of underwear, cash of about 9000 bucks. 
when told by police he was a suspect, he expressed no surprise whatsoever. He then took a lie detector test and scored a minus 20, which experts classify as deceptive. Oh, and he did tell his minister, Rosie Greer, former football player, I didn't mean to do it. I'm sorry. Evidence of guilt number six, witnesses. Witness Jill Shively says she saw O.J. driving his speeding Bronco away from the Bundy murder scene right around the time of the killings. Okay, she sold her story to a TV show for five grand. Toss her out if you want, but the fact she went for the bucks doesn't mean she made it up. O.J.'s uh, neighbor and Nicole's neighbor, Robert Heidstra, was walking through uh, the neighborhood. He said he heard two men arguing at Nicole's home and then saw a white vehicles speeding away from the murder scene. O.J., of course, drove a Ford White Bronco that night. The limo driver says he saw a man fitting O.J.'s description, six foot two, dressed in black, 200 pounds or so, walk into the entrance of Simpson's home. At the time, O.J. Simpson later tells the driver he was sleeping, and this is when the driver had been ringing the buzzer for 20 minutes. No reply. Then, shortly after he sees the man going into Simpson's home, O.J. answers the buzzer. Evidence of guilt number seven, motive. Quite a history between O.J. and Nicole. In 1982, he threw her against a wall. In 1987, he shoved her to the ground. 1989, he slapped her and pushed her from a moving car. On New Year's Day, 1989, police responded to a 911 call to find a bruised and bleeding Nicole hiding in the bushes, wearing a bra and sweatpants, crying, he's going to kill me. Nicole had her sister, Denise Brown, take pictures of her bruised body and locked them in a safe deposit box, telling her, I need proof that O.J. beat me. Without proof, nobody will believe me. In 1993, in a 911 recording, Nicole shouted, when he gets this crazed, I get scared. He gets a very animalistic look in his eyes. Wow. A lot of categories of smoking gun evidence. I'm tired just running through the list. So you be the judge. How the hell does Marsha Clark lose that case? Takeaway number two, what kind of a guy does that? What made O.J. Simpson tick? Why did he do it? Amid all of the armchair evaluations of why the O.J. Simpson tragedy has had such a vast impact on society, even to the point where the interest level today is sufficient, in the eyes of the FX network people anyway, to support a 10-week miniseries, there's this question of what makes a guy like O.J. Simpson tick? Well, we know he was a hugely talented athlete. We know he was charismatic. He wasn't going to fill up a trophy case with Oscars, but he was an actor. We know he was violent. For years, he beat up Nicole. Plenty of 911 calls and gruesome photographs to back that up. And we know he was a double murderer. He behaved in such a violent way, nearly decapitated his wife while his children lay in bed upstairs. He probably didn't think through the possibility the kids would hear the commotion after he ran away and then might discover the bodies of their mother and Ronald Goldman. So we know these to be the facts, but what made him tick? Well, the most common theory was that he was a sociopath. And if you look at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Disor Mental Disorders, 5th edition, issued in 2013, they list a bunch of traits that uh, a sociopath generally has. Disregard for the rights of others, a failure to feel remorse or guilt, tendency to display violent behavior, volatile and prone to emotional outbursts, including fits of rage. It's hard for them to form attachments with others. 
Crimes committed by a sociopath tend to be haphazard, disorganized, and spontaneous rather than planned. They display traits of glibness and superficial charm. Although they appear to be charming, they're covertly hostile and domineering, seeing their victim as just an instrument to be used. They have a grandiose sense of self. They have early behavior problems and juvenile delinquency. Extreme narcissism. Starting to sound familiar? It's the O.J. Simpson story. People report that basically as a teenager, he was a thug, he was in gangs, he got into jail and into trouble. But his athletic talents were so well known that somebody arranged for Willie Mays, baseball superstar, in the 60s to actually visit a teenage O.J. in jail to talk sense to him. And he did, and apparently it worked for a while. Takeaway number three. What did the Simpson case do to the relationship between the public and one of the three branches of government, namely our court system? Well, first, cameras in the courtroom for many years were a casualty of the drama. The lawyers became stars, defense attorney Johnny Cochran, prosecutor Marsha Clark. They were more recognizable and famous than the biggest stars in Hollywood. But they were also accused of of acting up, of playing for the cameras, and, and, and Judge Lance Ito allowed this to continue on, it was alleged. He permitted every nanosecond of the case to be seen on live television. So the camera got a black eye. People decided the case was a circus because it was televised. And it's probably true that the presence of a camera had some impact on the way the people in the courtroom behaved, although I've got my doubts about how much. But even if the camera was the only guilty party in the trial, we are never going to see the kind of public interest that uh, existed with respect to this case. And if we do, all it takes is a judge to slap the lawyers down and, if necessary, pull the plug on the cameras. So the answer isn't a camera blackout, but that's essentially what we got for years. The judge Malcolm Mackey, a terrific judge in the Los Angeles Superior Court, helped turn this around. Uh, he had a case involving Carol O'Connor accusing a drug dealer of essentially killing the actor's son. We also saw Judge Fiddler in the L.A. Superior Court say yes to cameras in two trials involving Phil Spector. No problems with any of these cases. But then we got into something that you can call cameras light. For example, the Conrad Murray manslaughter case. Yeah, you can you can videotape the opening statement and the final argument, and we'll let you get the uh, reading of the verdict, but not the witnesses. The public deserves more. The public deserves to see the entire trial if it's a high-profile case where a lot of people are interested for various reasons. They say sunlight is the best disinfectant. Nobody likes folks looking over their shoulder while they're doing their job, but this is the public's work we're talking about. You know, they say character is when you do good things when nobody's watching. But if people are watching, let's face it, you're more likely to do the right thing, and the camera can help guarantee that. Now, the coverage, whether televised or not, is a good thing. Lots of folks say we're obsessed. All the talk about legal cases is just sensationalism. Now, I'm biased because I was part of that, but I disagree with that conclusion. I mean, the intense interest in the Simpson case did give rise to a cottage industry, legal commentary. A bunch of us were asked to be talking heads on TV and provide sound bites on radio. And we've been inflicting our bloviations on the public now for some 20 years. And in that time, there's been a lot of conversation about whether all the talk is a colossal waste of time. So I don't want to get too defensive and take it personally, but I think you can make a case for the value of conversation about high-profile legal disputes. Let's start with a case you might have heard of, Brown versus Board of Education. 
Now, that involves a pretty weighty issue. You know, is it legal for public facilities to be racially segregated so long as the folks running the town make sure the facilities are of equal quality? Some people complain about saturation publicity over high-profile cases, but I think the fact we've been talking about Brown versus Board of Education for 60 years is a good thing. Thanks to the conversation, the commentary, and the analysis of this, probably the most famous of all U.S. Supreme Court cases, it's become part of our national psyche and lexicon that, yes, separate but equal schools and other facilities are inherently unequal and thus unfair, illegal, and forbidden. What about the Rodney King police beating case? Until the Simpson murder trial came along, it was probably the highest of all high-profile cases. He became a bit of an obsession with the public. All the conversation about the Rodney King case exposed the public to serious issues about police brutality, about the fact that even if the cops are found not guilty of a beating in state court, the Justice Department can haul them back into court on the federal side and charge them with civil rights violations, and it's not double jeopardy. The commentary about the Simpson case helped people learn that even after you win in a criminal case, you can face civil liability for wrongful death. Commentary about plenty of cases in the last few decades has helped people understand the importance of the cover-up as a crime. Of course, we had Richard Nixon's Watergate drama. There's never been any definitive evidence that Nixon knew about the burglary in advance, much less ordered it. But he certainly engaged in a cover-up of the crime, and that was enough to drive him from office. Martha Stewart was never charged with insider trading, but they got her for lying to investigators. She spent time in the slammer. Same thing happened to Vice President Dick Cheney's chief of staff, Louis Scooter Libby. He was never charged with revealing Valerie Plame's identity as a CIA agent. He was charged with lying to investigators, covering something up. So besides feeding the egos of guys like me, commentary has hopefully been of some benefit to the public. And with camera coverage of high-profile trials, the interest level in cases goes up, and there's more exposure of legal information to the public. And if you doubt the importance of people absorbing basic facts about their government and the legal system, you might take a look at the political landscape today. I mean, the phrase low-information voter could apply to the population generally. You might call it a low-information nation. How else do you explain the tens of millions of Americans hearing politicians make broad general promises with absolutely no explanation of how they're going to come true? And that's good enough for them. Not to pick on the Donald, but let's just cut to the core here. He has a hat. The hat says he's going to make America great again. He's going to make Mexico pay for a wall. He's going to take China down. How's that going to happen exactly? He has no idea. We have no idea what he's going to do. And it's because we've become a low-information society, Trump's supporters know what they hate. He feeds the hate, and they love him. And it's the same thing at the other end of the spectrum. Bernie's going to give everybody free health care. Bernie's going to give everybody free college. And how's that going to happen when we're $17 trillion in the hole? When socialism has been proven to be a no-growth failure, he has no idea, and his enthusiastic supporters have no idea how to achieve economic success because we've become a low-information society. Bernie's supporters know what they hate, rich people, and what they want, everything free. He feeds the hate and the greed, and they love him. The cure for low-information voters is information. How does our government work? 
How does our economy work? How does the system of checks and balances the founders put into the Constitution that led to the most successful, enduring engine of political and economic and military success in the history of the world, how exactly does that work? You teach that in school. You let the public see and hear about what's going on in their judicial system. And maybe the the needle will tick up a little bit on the information scale. So how exactly are we supposed to compete with the economic and technological and military powerhouses around the world, if our citizens consist of hordes of clueless millennials meandering the landscape, either wearing a ball cap saying, make America great again, or sticking their hand out saying, I'd like some of that free stuff. I'm not saying people need to listen to me blab about the Miranda rule, but we better find a cure for the no-information voter. All right, takeaway number four, the power of celebrity. O.J. wasn't the first celebrity, but boy, did he turbocharge the concept. I mean, the power of celebrity was so dramatized by the Simpson case, it may have given rise to the phrase celebrity justice, this idea that we cut celebrities slack and are not as judgmental against them because, after all, they're famous and special and somehow deserve to live differently or live by different standards. What an irony that the family, known more than anyone else, perhaps in the history of the planet, for being famous just for being famous, the Kardashians, it all flowed out of the O.J. drama. The power of celebrity occurs in a lot of different ways. Yes, the general public is more likely to forgive celebrities and look the other way if they commit misconduct. But the police force is guilty of the same attitude. Remember, Simpson repeatedly beat up his wife, Nicole, repeatedly called the police. They came out time and again But for the cops to come out and talk to O.J. Simpson, it's probably like high school football players asking O.J. for an autograph after a Buffalo Bills game. They worshipped the guy. Maybe the fact we were all drenched in publicity about Simpson and gave a lot of thought to the power and importance of celebrity in our society, maybe it helped inject some common sense into the national conversation. On the other hand, you can make a case for the idea that we really haven't evolved much since the Simpson trial. You turn on TV, and there's Leonardo DiCaprio addressing the United Nations on the subject of climate change. I mean, I loved Titanic. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street was awesome. The Revenant was a little hard to take, but a terrific movie. But climate change? Hey, Leo, how do you feel about cold fusion? I've never really gotten that string theory straight. Could you explain it to me? Number six, police racism. Finally, O.J. may not have invented the issue of police racism, but he he really jump-started that topic as well. The whole nation was talking about whether the cops were racist and so had a motive to frame Simpson. So you fast forward to 2015, when the news story of the year was whether police in America are racist, regularly shooting innocent young black men. We've all seen dramatic footage of shootings where there's apparently no explanation other than the illegal desire of an officer to shoot a suspect. But political motivations have turned those isolated incidents into a cause, not always justified by the circumstances, just as Johnny Cochran turned his attack on the LAPD into a cause for O.J.'s acquittal, even though no rational person could have believed that given all that evidence, Simpson was innocent. So it's not a surprise we're still talking about the Simpson case, that it still has a sufficient hold over us with Cuba Gooding Jr. and John Travolta and Michael Schwimmer winding up in a 10-hour dramatization of the affair. Okay, we're done with the O.J. history lesson. We've gone over the takeaways. How about that FX movie? 
So we've got four Tuesday nights in the books, four out of ten. We've gotten through the murders, the low-speed chase, the hiring of Johnny Cochran, and now the addition of Christopher Darden as a black member of the prosecution team to kind of balance things out. Overall, the movie is great. It it captures the essence of what happened 20-plus years ago. Sarah Paulson, the actress who plays Marsha Clark, is marvelous. Courtney Vance, who plays Johnny Cochran, is terrific. The fly in the ointment is that most everybody else is kind of a caricature. It's hard to know if you blame the screenwriter. Uh, it just felt like there was just so much exposition to do, so much explaining. They had to put fact after awkward fact into the dialogue to remind people about the important stuff. Or maybe you blame the actors or the director for, for, for chewing the scenery. I mean, Robert Shapiro? I didn't know the guy. I bumped into him a couple of times. But if he was anything like the arrogant, venal, self-absorbed doofus as presented by John Travolta, it's hard to imagine how he became the leader of the dream team. Take a small part like Fred Goldman, father of murder victim Ron Goldman. Now, everybody knows who lived through the trial. He was an angry, loud, emotional guy. But the scene in the movie where he and his daughter Kim are sitting in Marsha Clark's office, the idea is the movie wanted to convey how furious he was, how he wanted to deliver the message to Marsha loud and clear, you better get this guy. And it's ironic, the actor that got to play Fred, unlike all the other actors, he is an absolute dead ringer for Fred Goldman. You'd think, wow, how'd they get Fred to take this job? But the first word out of his mouth in the scene is deafening. I mean, your ears hurt. He's yelling at Marsha so loudly. The dialogue is straight out of a cartoon. Meanwhile, poor Kim Goldman, Ron's sister, is portrayed in the movie as essentially comatose. While Dad is screaming at the top of his lungs, she's sitting there with her eyes half open, her head kind of drifting left to right, like she's half conscious. The anger and the grief were still fresh, and it's unimaginable for most people, thank God. But, you know, this movie feels like it's trying way too hard. As I say, the first episode included the murders, but not in a graphic way. The second gave you the Bronco chase. Uh, The third, Robert Shapiro's uh, game-changing call to Johnny Cochran to bring him onto the dream team. It's the low-speed chase, though, that really takes you back. I mean, it galvanized the nation, really the world. It captured the way the spectacle grabbed the nation by the throat. And O.J. didn't let go until that not guilty verdict 16 months later. So the film is going to explain a lot to the millennials uh, about what the Simpson fuss was all about. The one thing most people who live through the drama still have a hard time understanding, certainly I do, is how the national attention span was stretched way beyond the point any other story would have snapped it. But Simpson somehow did it. Well, that's it. I'm parched. I'm going to get a glass of O.J. Number 37 on our list of top 50 songs of all time features an artist who burst onto the scene thanks to American Idol, and she's still going strong. The song made the film Love Actually all the more memorable. Here's Kelly Clarkson's The Trouble With Love Is. Love can be a many splendid thing Cares another joy it brings A dozen roses Inside. Make your heart 
You fall.